The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ... So also, wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, um, we've got one way. Welcome to Sacred City Church. I'm Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And one way that uh, we free up parking is just by preaching through the Bible, and uh, one way we can do that is just by preaching through this scripture right here, okay? Because this pretty much guarantees that a lot of you might not be back next week. Uh, as soon as you use the word submit, um, it's kind of scary, and it, it's just our way of freeing up parking and being obedient to the word of God at the same time. So um, that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, we, don't, we try not to do anything fancy here. Um, a lot of the songs that we sing are... Uh, hundreds of years old, um, that Christians have been singing in them for hundreds of years. Some of them, a song we sang last year, or last, um, last week was actually 1,200 years old, um, that Christianity, someone, I was talking to someone who was not a believer this week, and they say, all you Christians sound alike, and, and you have the same arguments. And I say, yeah, yeah we, we kind of do have the same arguments because um, there's nothing new about this. This has been something that's been going on for 2,000 years. And um, that's kind of how we, we do the church around here. We, we try to be as, be as rooted in historical Christianity as possible. Um, the reason we have this crazy stage is not because we're trying to be relevant or cool. The reason we have this crazy stage is because we're in a junior theater and they have some crazy drama that's going on this week. All right? So some of you are walking in like, that's cool. I walk in, I'm like, I don't want that. I like a black, fl- flat, nothing stage, but it's okay. Uh, I am the flying squirrel today, if you were wondering. I've been called that more than once in my life, so uh, it's a fitting title. Uh, so that's what we're doing. We're, we preach right through the book, books of the Bible. Right now we're in the book of Ephesians. We've been here for about 20 weeks now, I think. Um, if you're wondering, I thought you just, you know, I thought this church was brand new. It is brand new. We, had, uh, we started the book of Ephesians with some of our leaders in our missional communities. These are small communities of people that, that live life as family, and they're on mission to serve areas of our city. That we are a church for the city. We're not a church for ourselves. Um, so we exist to serve the needs 
of our city and to bless our city. And we do that through missional communities, small uh, groups of people that meet as families throughout the city. And we started preaching through the book of Ephesians on Sunday nights with our missional communities and our missional community leaders. And then in January of this year, we got this space and we, we launched a public Sunday service. And, and uh, we are very thankful that you're here. We're humbled that you're here with us today. Um, this is not our church. This is just a part of our church. This is a part of what we do. Uh, we seek to live out the gospel in all areas of our life seven days a week and not just one. So this is a piece of what we do, but this is just a small piece of what we do. So you're getting to, you're, you're getting to see one-seventh of, of who we are as, as people and as a church. And we welcome you into it. We invite you into it. If you're on mission with us to the city, we invite you to come in and, and um, gather around the gospel of Jesus Christ and then serve the needs of, of our community. And so now we're, we've gotten to Ephesians chapter 5, verses uh, 21 through 33. And we're going to sit down here. For those of you, this is really a way to free up parking. We're going to sit down here for probably six weeks. Uh, because it's on the topic of marriage. And God has a lot to say about marriage because God invented marriage. And marriage is uh, one of the most important institutions that he's established in our world. That many of us... Um, are married or will be married or want to be married or have been married, that marriage affects every single one of us or the lack of marriage has affected every single one of us. So we're going to spend some time um, sitting down in this passage, seeing what God has to say about it. I think it's going to be refreshing to you. Um, maybe you've been to church and heard some stuff on marriage before, but it's going to be, a, I think it'll be a fresh perspective for you. Um, because it's not going to be based on what the culture has to say. The culture's got a lot of stuff to say about marriage. And uh, most of it's just regurgitated um, philosophy, and it's not rooted in truth and rooted in reality. And we can show that a little bit tonight. And uh, we're going to really dig apart the scriptures and see what it has to say. And if you're single in here and you're like, well, pff, marriage, all right, I'll come back in six weeks, peace. Uh, then I'm just going to, I, I want to tell you that the reason you should, if you ever want to be married, you should sit through this, you should listen to this, you should absorb this, you should hear what, the, what God has to say about marriage because it's going to affect your life. And it's kind of, that's kind of like saying, I'll learn how to drive a car when I get one. All right, you jump behind a wheel and you get one, good luck with that, right? Good luck with that. It's probably not gonna go well for you. There's a reason we have driver's ed, okay? There's a reason somebody sits in the car and helps you learn to drive a stick, okay? If you've ever learned to drive a stick. You don't just hop in there and go, all right? And marriage is, is, is pretty similar, um, it's helpful to know the purpose of it, the meaning of it, what's, what's going on. And um, I'm going to, uh, I really like to be, sometimes I like to be original and stuff, but this is uh, one way that God is crucifying my flesh is uh, I read a book this, I read a book a month or so ago called The Meaning of Marriage. It's on the New York Times bestsellers list. My mentor, uh, one of my mentors, Timothy Keller, um, Dr. Timothy Keller from, uh, he's a Presbyterian pastor in New York City. And uh, just an amazing book. And so th this series of messages is pretty much going to be out of that book. Um, so I'm just going to let you know that if you want to get even a, probably a better version, a more complete version, buy the book and read it. N very little of what I'm going to say is actually going to be original. It's not going to be my own thoughts. It's going to be a lot of his because um, this series of messages he preached about 20 years ago in New York City. And New York City is about 20 years ahead of us, okay? As it, when it comes to cultural engagement, when it comes to the philosophy of the age and the cultural mindset, uh, the way New Yorkers live is about 20 years, 15 years ahead of us. So some of the things that were affecting him then are affecting us now. And it's, it's uh, really been shaping to my soul. And I think it's going to be uh, beneficial for all of us. So, so with that said, I'm going to give you a little outline of where we're going. 
with this series. We're going to have basically six weeks. Last week was uh, the power of marriage. It talked about Ephesians 5.21 that said, all of us are to submit to one another. Okay, so, so wives who are freaked out about wives submit to the husbands. First off, before he says that in verse 21, he says, all of you out of reverence for Christ, submit to one another. So out of what's the power of that submission out of reverence for Christ, a fear and awe, um, an awe inspired love for Christ and what Christ has done for us on the cross should produce in us, will produce in us, if we believe it, a self-sacrificial love. Okay, we talked about last week that the number one reason, the reason you have any marital problems, the reason you've had a divorce, the reason um, if you ever have a divorce, the reason you have any problems in your marriage is this one reason. You and your spouse are self-centered. That's where it comes down to. When you get down to the bottom of it, we are self-centered creatures that want to say love is about you serving my needs. And the basis of our problems are, are we want what we want and we forget about what they want. Okay, we talked about that self-centeredness is the main problem of marriage and it's the main problem of your life period. It's why your relationships are, get broken up. It's why you have you have fights and you have quarrels and all this stuff. It's your self-centeredness. So single people, why am I listening to a, a, a sermon on marriage? Because you're still self-centered and don't fix that. Don't wait to fix that. Don't wait to work on that until you get married. So yesterday we had a gospel centered finance seminar and it, it was it was awesome. We had a guy, a deacon come in from Omaha. And served us well. And one of the things he, he talked about is single people don't live like a single person right now. Be preparing for marriage. If you want to be married someday, don't be using visa. Don't be going to the mall. I mean, ladies, sometimes ladies, you know, we, you know, we, you tend to want, you tend to look at the pack, outside package. Actually, guys and girls, you look at the outside of the package, and you're like, I'm going to choose it by that. You, you should use some. You should see through that a little bit. If he's got two hundred dollar jeans on. Right? If he's got $1,200 rims on his car, don't say, wow, he must have money. Say, wow, Visa owns him. <laughs> and you should really look at that package and say, okay, that guy looks about, let me think, he's probably about two grand in debt. That's real attractive. Right? He, he, he might look good in the jeans, but those jeans, are, he's going to be paying on those jeans when your kids are in college. Okay? So we should reframe how we choose a spouse. All right? Number two, the definition of marriage, that's what's going to be today. We're going to talk about the definition of marriage, and that's marriage as covenant. It's a strange word we don't really use very often anymore. Marriage as covenant. I just remembered, but I turned my phone off. That would be bad. Um, a covenant is, means to cleave or to be glued to or to be bound to. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about the priority of marriage. Um, marriage is the most important relationship in your life. Marriage is the most important relationship in your life. It's the priority. More than the relationship with your kids. And we'll, we'll prove that. We'll talk about that. You, you have a relationship with your kids, basically that intimate one for maybe 18 years. And then uh, they're out of the house. Um, marriage is meant to be the primary relationship of your life. And we're going to talk about how, um, how it affects us. That many times, everything in your life could be going to hell. Everything in your life could be falling in around you. But if your marriage is strong, you can step out into your marriage and in your life with boldness. But if everything in your life is going well, if the business is going well, if the kids are doing well, but you step into that home and the marriage is broken and there's fighting and there's bickering and there's self-centeredness, you, go to, you step out into the world in weakness. It affects your business. It affects your soul. It affects every other relationship in your life. Marriage, there's a priority of marriage, okay? Number four, uh, the purpose of marriage. It's for oneness. It's for friendship. It's for companionship. We're going to spend a whole week on that. 
um, that friendship is, is not talked about these days when it comes to marriage. And the primary, the, the primary um, way we should view our spouse is our best friend. And that's why it's so dangerous to have other best friends. Our marriage, our spouse should be, by the nature of the relationship, should be our best friend. So anytime you bring a third party in, it could be the same sex, it could be the opposite sex, it could bring danger because you bring in somebody that gets in between you two and, and can drive a wedge there. So we're going to talk about uh, the purpose of marriage for oneship, oneness and friendship and companionship. Um, and the fifth week is when I will jump on that grenade um, of the structure of marriage. We will talk about submission, headship, what does all this mean? Christ is the head, or Christ is the head of the body, and we're the, we're the body as the church. Husband's the head, and the wife's the body. What does all this structure of marriage mean? What does this submission mean? What does this, the roles, what does all that mean? And I will lay myself on the barbed wire on week five, all right? And then number six is the mystery of marriage. The mystery of marriage. This is so crazy. Paul literally, when he goes off, and he starts talking about what marriage is. At the end of his little, his little sermon, he says, and this is a mystery. All right? If you've ever been married, you've probably laid your head down on the pillow and said the same thing. Oh, God, this is a mystery. Right? She is a mystery. He is a mystery. I don't get it. All right? And he says, the relationship between a husband and a wife mirrors Christ and his church. It points to it. It, it, it. it expounds upon it. shows us something about God, our relationship with Christ. And it's a mystery. So uh, we're going to spend uh, some time there. He's saying marriage and sex are a foretaste of what it will be like to be loved by God in the new creation. When heaven passes away and this earth passes away and God unites the two and he recreates this whole earth. That might have just flipped your, you know, cooked your noodle right there and flipped your lid right there. Heaven's not the point if you didn't know that. Some of us grow up in... American, we think, oh, someday I'm going to go to heaven. Well, yes, someday you will go to heaven, but thank God someday heaven will be rebuilt and this earth will be rebuilt and we live on this earth for eternity, okay? So those of you who think, man, I don't want to be a Christian because it means floating around on a cloud and, you know, shooting little angels at fat little babies or whatever the heck it is of the hallmarks taught us, right? That's not heaven, okay? I'm looking forward to heaven because I'm going to be able to run dead sprint and never breathe heavy. I can't wait. I cannot wait to be able to work out. I mean, I love to work out. And to be able to work out without my heart beating hard? Oh, boy. I'm stoked about this. All right? I'm stoked about this. No effect of sin anywhere to be seen. So God's saying marriage somehow, in a mysterious way, points to the new creation, points to what uh, our relationship with, with Christ and the church. So that's where we're going in the next few weeks. So we encourage you, um, if you are married... If you, are, want to be, if you want to be married, if you have been married and, you, and you're looking to be married, or if you're just single and you're really immature right now and uh, you need some uh, admonishment, this, sermon, this uh, series is for you, okay? Uh, so today we're going to talk about the definition of marriage, the definition of marriage. Um, I want you to look at verse 31. If you've got a Bible, we actually have um, a few Bibles in the back. If you don't, I think maybe we can get this... Uh, the text up on the screen as well. Um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Um, if you have an iPad or an iPhone or a droid, we put all of our liturgy and all of our scripture and all of that on version. So it's the Bible app, version, And uh, you just click live events. Sacred City Church should be right there. And then you could read it all um, right there for you. So verse 31. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Now, I could talk about that all day long. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Okay? If you want to be a man, if you call yourself a man, start by leaving your father and mother. All right? We could talk about this in in the context of marriage as well. If you've ever been married to a person who they call a mama's boy, every fight's got to go back to mom. Every fight, you've got to end up in dad's living room. Every fight. The Bible starts with saying, therefore, leave your father and mother. I didn't mean, man, I could go off all day on that, so I better not. Okay? Therefore, leave your father and mother and hold fast. We use the ESV around here. Uh, Hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Okay? The ESV says to leave and hold fast. The King James Version, if you're familiar with that, it says to leave and to cleave. Okay? To cleave to your wife. To leave and cleave or to leave and to hold fast. All right, this word in the Greek is called, oh Lord, proskolau, proskolau, which literally means to be devoted to or to be tied to legally, to cleave or to be committed totally to, to be stuck to. And this is a reference from the Apostle Paul to Genesis chapter 2, okay? Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, when God takes this man and he looks at this man and he says, He says, first off, he creates everything in the universe and he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. He creates light, it's good. He creates the world, it's good. He creates earth, it's good. He creates all these things, it's good. He creates a man, it's not good, right? And all the women said, yep, that's right, that's right. I've been saying that every day of of my life, I've been telling him that, okay? He looked and he said, it's not good. It's not good that man should be alone, so he creates a helper. He creates um, a a helpmeet or someone to compliment him which shows us men and women, we were created with designed deficits. It was not good that man should be alone. It's not good that woman should be alone. We were created with designed deficits that when we come together, we each meet. We see this sexually. We see this in the verse, right? The two should be united in their flesh and become one flesh. Designed deficits. Much of this shows us how a man and a wife are are meant to respond. We'll talk more about that later. The husband gives, the wife receives. All right? We are built with design deficits. Now, here in in Genesis 2.24, when he says uh, the husband should leave and cleave, or the husband should leave and hold fast, that the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, and that Hebrew, Hebrew word literally means to be glued to. That word for covenant or to cleave means to be glued to. And I told you last week that marriage was not created, no matter what our cultures say, by some dude sitting around the campfire in the late Bronze Age. All right, just thinking, "Hmm, how can we really maximize our effort here? Mm, We need to produce. We need to get some stuff done. I like bread. Let's, Let's find a woman. Maybe she can cook for us, okay? It's not how it happened, all right? It's not how it happened. It's not like a a thing out of convenience, okay? God established marriage as an institution created by him. So God said, man, it's not good for you to be alone. I will create out of your side. I love it. Out of your side. It cost him something. He, didn't, he made man out of the dirt. 
right? Sorry, men, sorry. He made us out of dirt. He made her out of us. Took us, took a rib out of Adam's side and fashioned woman. And the first words out of the man's mouth wasn't, get me a beer, okay? The first words out of a man's wife are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It was poetry, men. Poetry. I hope you scored some points this week because I fed you some good stuff last week on Valentine's Day. Okay? Poetry was the first words out of the mouth of a man. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Thank you, God, for creating this woman for me that I am deficit and she completes me in some way. Okay? So... God established marriage right there in the garden. And he said it's a covenantal relationship. You're meant to be glued together. Um, which means marriage operates and functions exactly how God meant it to operate and function. Okay, this is an illustration that might be a little worn out. Um, but if you want marriage to go well for you, you need to understand how it was meant to function, how it was built, right? If you go buy a car, uh, you go down to the, the lot and you say, I'm going I'm to get a brand new F-150. And you come out and you say, you know what? Um, I really, the culture's telling me I need to go green, so I really find it important to go green, so I'm going to use um, corn oil for gasoline. And you start pouring corn oil, corn oil in, your gas, in your gas tank, it's going to go bad for you. You're going to ruin that brand new truck. Why? It was not created to run on corn oil. It was created to run on gasoline. I know it's yours, but you don't get to make the rules, Right? I know you feel like marriage is yours. It's between your husband and wife. You, you, you get to set the rules. Well, we'll do our marriage how we want it. We'll have an open marriage. Or, or we'll have this. I want to set the rules for marriage. Our culture is telling us all these. It's just a human institution. It's just a piece of paper. It's just whatever it is. You make the rules. And God says, it's going to go bad for you. Just like when we, get it, when we go buy a brand new vehicle, we have to understand how it was created if we want it to function properly. Okay, So it goes the same way for marriage. We need to know how it was created so that we can understand how it works. So here we go. What is the definition of marriage? Marriage is a covenant. It's a binding, public, legal contract. Well, what, what is a covenant, Justin? All right, here's four things from the Old Testament. Four things that every covenant had. Number one, it had an agreement between two parties. All right, it had something going on between parties. Uh, it was between, first one, I think it was between God, well, actually between God and Adam and Eve. It, it said those are the parties. All right, then we've got one between God and Abraham. Then we've got one between God and Israel. Then we've got one between God. It's, the first part of it is who, who's the parties involved, okay? Second part of a covenant, there's regulations or stipulations to the covenant. All right, for Adam and Eve, it was I've given you everything. Love me most. Serve me, worship me. I'm the created God. You are the creation. And then there was this, the third part. Blessings or for obedience and curses for disobedience to the stipulation. So he says to Adam and Eve, he says, listen, I've created all this for you. Have fun. Just that one tree, don't touch, or that one tree, don't eat from that one tree. And if you do, you're going to die. If you do, it's not going to go well for you. So the covenant between God and Adam and Eve, all right, then he, he lays out the regulations or the stipulations. Then he tells them, okay, if you don't follow this, it's going to go bad for you. And then the vows or the public ratification of the covenant. Okay, that's the fourth part. The vows of the covenant, the public ratification. In the Old Testament, they literally, when people would make a covenant together, they would literally split an animal in half and lay it on the ground and they would walk between it and they would say, we are covenanting to agree 
to, to do these things. And if we fail to honor our word, if we fail to do them, let us be like this animal. And blood was spilt in order to establish a covenant. So there's a vows and the public ratification. Okay, so in marriage, if marriage is a covenant, two people are making a serious commitment to each other. They're making a covenant. Okay, now you might not like this. It sounds too, you know, legal and boring and dry. Um, Well, I can see why you would say that. And uh, actually, I think you might be right, but I think we need to take a look at this statement. Covenants are legal. They take discipline. They take authority. They take commitment. Right? That's tough stuff. That's tough language. Does that sound like love to you? Discipline, authority, commitment. Does that sound like love to you? Are those love words? Talk to me about discipline. Talk to me about covenant. Talk to me about commitment. Right? That's what I want to see in in my Valentine's Day card. Well, listen, this, I'm afraid, is where we're showing our postmodern tendencies, okay? um, Philosophers say we're in the postmodern era, right? That's the the worldview that most of us espouse to by just living and breathing the air of the culture that we breathe. And this this definition, when we see legal, legal, commitment, responsibility, when we are averse to these, we're bringing, listen, we're bringing our postmodern definition of love to bear on marriage. See, the pre-modern mind loves those words. They loved those words. They defined themselves and they found their ultimate value as a part of a family. To them, commitment was the ultimate form of love. These are my people. I'm one of them. I'm committed to them. In the, in the pre-modern mind, you defined yourself by the family you were a part of. You defined yourself by the people that you were a part of. It was a communal existence. It was communal. You found your value in community. Their identity was shaped by being a part of a community. But postmodern people, we are totally opposite of that. We find our value in freedom and individuality. We value spontaneity over responsibility. We value keeping our options open over commitment. But what we don't realize is that by doing that, we are assuming a definition of love that is totally based on our feelings. By doing that, we are assuming a definition of love that is totally based on our feelings. It's really common to hear today, um, marriage is just a piece of paper. Or, I don't need a piece of paper to know I love you. Or, she, don't need a, she doesn't need a piece of paper to know that I love her. What that statement is saying is, my love is not based on a covenant. It is based in my feelings. And right now, I feel like I love you. And right now, I feel like receiving love for you. That's what that statement's saying. And honestly, that statement is saying, and I'll show you in the future, that statement is saying, I love you right now, but I'm not sure if I'll love you in the future, so I'm not willing to tie myself to you. I'm not willing to glue myself to you. I'm not willing to give up all my options for you. So I love you because my feelings tell me that I love you right now, but I don't really know in the future. Totally different definition of love. The Bible measures love by how much a person is willing to give up. 
for another. You can really see this in, uh, in couples. I've done, I do a lot of weddings, and it's funny to see this in uh, uh, couples who write their own wedding vows. Now, if you've done that, sorry, but I'm going to cap on it a little bit. Um, they typically go something like this. I love you. I'm so happy with you. You make me feel so good. You are the best thing that has ever happened to me, and I want to share my life with you. One of them even said, I promise to make dump dessert for you for the rest of my life. I'm like, "Mm, that's a big promise, girl. I don't know. Like, I've literally, I'm standing there and I'm like, these vows are weird, okay? (laughs) Right? Now listen, those vows are completely based on feelings. Oh, right now I love you so much. Right now I feel so good about you. Right now, it's just all about feelings. The first day I met you, oh, when we skipped off into the sunset, oh, everything is just feeling, 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 right? Everything is feeling. Now listen, Christian vows are totally different. Christian, historical Christian vows are totally different, okay? They don't say anything about their feelings. The feelings are assumed. They say like this, I promise, oh, I love this. I promise to be loving. I promise to be tender. I promise to be kind. I promise to be faithful. I promise to be cherishing no matter how I feel. Do you see the difference? Oh, I love you so much. You're so sweet. When I look into your face, I just, ah. Okay, totally different. What kind of, you're not making vows. You're just saying how you feel in the moment, okay? You maybe had a triple shot latte before you got married. That makes me feel that way too. Christian vows are totally different because biblical, biblical love is shown in how much I am willing to sacrifice for another person, how much I am willing to deny my choices for another. But that's scary, isn't it? I like to keep my options open. <clears throat> I want to keep my options open because just in case this person doesn't work out, I can bail. I'm going to invite them into my home and I'm going to live together to see if this thing works out. Listen, listen to the type of love you're assuming. That's, that's a horribly self-centered, selfish form of love. If this girl's breath is too bad, I'm gone, right? If she can't clean the house, I'm gone. If he's irresponsible with money, I'm gone. If he has weaknesses that I don't like, I'm gone. If she has weaknesses I'm like, I don't, I'm gone. This is why 80% of cohabitation's break up. There's no covenant. There's no commitment. It's all self-centered. It's a self-centered form of love. Uh-oh. Ooh, that scared me there for a second. Um, I've been on a roll lately. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors, and I've been actually quoting him off the cuff the last few weeks, but I figured, hey, I might as well keep the role going and quote him again. Uh, many times that we, we don't want to commit and we don't want to covenant because we're afraid to be hurt. We've been hurt in the past and we're afraid if I commit to this person, they might hurt me. Okay? So what we do is we redefine love and we redefine marriage to serve my needs thinking if I do it my way, I won't be hurt. If I do it my way, I'll protect myself. And this is one of my favorite quotes. Um, All of that is to try not to be vulnerable. I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to get a prenup. I'm going to do all of these things to protect myself from being vulnerable with a person. 
And the Bible says, sorry, you can't do that. The Bible says marriage is about vulnerability. A wife is laying her life down. A husband is laying their life down. They're completely bare. They're completely open. They're completely honest with one another. They're vulnerable. That's where love starts. Now, listen to this quote by C.S. Lewis. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. To love is to be vulnerable. The only safe place from a broken heart is hell, where nobody gives their heart to anyone else. If you're unwilling to be vulnerable to another person because you're afraid to be hurt, you're going to be more hurt in the long run. You're going to become hard, self-centered, self-focused, inward, in curvitus in se, as Martin Luther said in his commentary to the Romans, bent in on yourself, trying to get everybody else to meet your needs, to fill your happiness, to make you feel like you're worthwhile. You're going to be more hurt in the long run. So right away, marriage is covenantal by definition. It's a covenant. What does that look like, Justin? What does that look like? Well, here's the practical side of it. I'm going to give you two things, the practical side of it. Number one, the essence of love is not a feeling, but an action. The essence of love is not a feeling, but an action. Okay, postmodern people like us think that love is a ditch that you fall into. Okay, love is a virus that you catch. You just can't help it. Walking by somebody in the coffee shop and just bumped into them and all of a sudden it just jumps on me. I'm in love. I can't help it. It's not something that you catch. It's not a ditch you fall into. It's not a virus you catch. People think when it happens, it just overtakes us. Well, in the Bible, love is not primarily a feeling, but an action. When Jesus tells us to love our enemies, he's not telling us to feel loving towards them. That's physically impossible. Somebody punches you in the mouth and just, thank you, may I have another? He's saying, when my feelings disagree, act loving towards them. Act loving towards them. Love is an action and the feeling comes along behind it. Put their needs above your own. He's saying to act loving to them. Love is an action that leads to a feeling. Love is not a bargain, but a commitment. It's not a contract, but a covenant. A contract says this. This is why prenups don't work. A contract says this. If you do that, then I'll do that. And as soon as they stop doing that, you stop doing this. It's a contract. It's a business deal. A covenant, a contract is two people saying, this is what a brother said to me yesterday or last week. A contract is two people saying, here are my rights. If you do that, I'll do this. Here are my rights. A covenant is two people saying, I give up my rights for you. I give up my rights. I lay my life down for you. Now, if you're a parent, 
you should understand this. You probably do understand this. Um, a covenant is about loving a person even when you don't feel like it. Le- acting loving towards them even when you don't feel like it. If you're a parent, you should get this. How much love has your, have your kids really returned to you? If, you? if your kids are in the room, I apologize for that awkwardness, but <laughs> is it anywhere proportionate? Is it anywhere proportionate? Is it anywhere proportionate to the love that you've shown them? Probably not, right? Especially like the first two years of their life, right? The first two years of their life, they're completely incapable of showing you any kind of love, right? Oh, psh, they're spraying you with their, you know what, and all kind. Of, you're like, if you do that when you're 18, it's, it's really wrong, okay? But if you get away with it when you're two years old or a baby. The first two years of their life, they're completely incapable of doing anything for you. But guess what? completely self-centered little babies crying in the middle of the night, want food, do their business all over your nice shirt, right? Just absolutely inconvenient, self-centered little bags of flesh, right? We love them all. They're cute. I know, but they are, right? They are. But listen, that first two years, you're constantly loving them and they're never returning the favor. But doesn't your love grow for them during that time? They can't return anything. They're, they act completely selfish because they are, right? And you're just giving and giving and giving and they're never saying thank you, right? They're not returning, but your love grows for them. You become more connected, more committed to their love, Right? Because that's a covenant. That's a covenantal love. In parenting, we know that our feelings follow actions. We act, they, um, the Nazis, they, they said this in, in their trial, or someone said it in a commentary about the Nazis, that they killed the Jews because they hated them, and then they hated the Jews because they killed them. They killed the Jews because they hated them, and then they hated the Jews because they had killed them. Feelings follow actions. If I treat you bad, I'll begin to hate you because of what I've been, how I've been acting towards you. If I act loving towards you, I'll begin to love you even more because love is an action that is followed by a feeling. In parenting, feelings follow actions. But many times, look at this, many times in marriage, we use a completely different definition of love with our spouse. We love our kids, not expecting anything from them. We're pouring love on them. And then we love our wife or we love our spouse. And we say, you better do this or I'm gone. If you don't fill my love tank, I'm bolting. Right? If you don't take out the trash, if you don't pay the bills, if you don't clean the kitchen, if you don't, whatever it is your stipulations are, if you don't tell me how beautiful I am, if you don't um, faint when I walk in the door, if you don't swoon every time I speak, if you don't, you know, whatever it is, If you don't do this, I'm gone. Completely self-centered form of love. We get it with our kids. Your kid tells you you he hates you when he's five or six, right? And unless you're completely child-focused and your whole identity is found in your kid, it doesn't break you, it doesn't crush you. It almost draws you into them. Watch parents who love their kids when their kids go buck wild at 16. 
kids are going to be completely disobedient. Kids are going off the deep end. And their parents, their minds are completely consumed with their kids during that time. Completely. Their love almost takes it up a notch. It's like the furnace that finally kicks on, right? They've got that pilot light lit the whole time. And when that kid starts acting a fool, love even gets bigger during that crazy time. It's covenantal love. It's covenantal love. But with marriage, it's not like that. Marriage, one of them starts doing something I don't like, and then I'm going to start distancing myself from them. I'm going to start holding back love from them. He ain't doing that. I ain't doing this. I'm not going to tell him I love him. He hasn't told me that in six months. And you just distance and you distance and you distance and you isolate and you isolate and you isolate. And it's based out of a postmodern idea that love is a feeling. The The biblical definition of love says you are actually being more loving toward a person when you are acting loving, kind, faithful when you don't feel like it. when you don't feel like it. You're being more loving when you're acting loving when you don't feel like it. It's a biblical definition of love or one of them. So number, that's number one. Number two, the essence of marriage is, this is awesome, confrontational. The essence of marriage is confrontational. Uh, because we have a postmodern view of love, as, I got to roll up my sleeves for this one. Uh, we have this false belief that when we get married, we're always supposed to feel affectionate towards them. See, that's what this postmodern idea of marriage as a feeling does. If it's a ditch I fall into, if it's a virus I catch, then I'm going to get it and I'm always going to have it. I want you to think about that. I want you to assess yourself right now. Is that where you're at with love? You feel, oh my gosh, this, I'm always going to feel this way. That real love always feels goo-goo-eyed. That's not reality. There's going to be times you can't stand that guy. There's going to be times that girl gets on, the, gets on your last nerve. Right? Don't even touch me with them ice-cold feet today. Uh-uh. <laughs> Come up out of this bed. Today is not the day. If we think love is based on a feeling, that it's something we fall into, that it's something we catch, we assume that we'll always feel that way. So when we stop feeling that way, when the jokes get old, you went to that well way too many times, son. Right? When that joke gets old, when the quirkiness doesn't, it's not fun, cute quirkiness anymore, it's just annoying. Why do you do that? You embarrass me in front of everybody. Right? When the fact that he can't match his clothes really gets on your nerves, right? When the feelings stop, love stops in that definition. When the feeling stops, commitment's gone. No covenant. When the feelings stop, I'm looking for better options. Oh, that's such a wicked spot to be in. That's one of the things that's so wicked about cohabitation, shacking up before you get married, is because you're living with the person, but you're still scouting. As soon as I see somebody a little bit more mature, a little bit better off, maybe a little more financially secure, I'm jumping ship, kicking you out, and I'm getting them. Oh, it's wicked. So self-centered. So self-centered. Not self-sacrificial. 
That's absolutely ridiculous. If marriage is something you fall into, then it's something you can climb out of. You just bail whenever you need to. I want you to look at verse 27 in our text. Chapter 5, verse 27. And I say, marriage is confrontational. What does that mean? Look at verse 27. This has been a sweet text to me the past few weeks. Verse 27. Uh, Actually, let's start in verse 26. I apologize. Um, That he... No, I'm going to start in verse 25. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's where we see love. Christ gave himself up, laid his life down, self-sacrificial. Look, that he might, so for this purpose, sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Men, women, one of our jobs, one of the purposes of marriage, one of the, the things that marriage does is we wash each other. Okay, we wash each other. We make each other better, more presentable to God on the last day that we help sanctify. Now, the spirit does the work through us, but he he uses us as instruments for that. So we are meant to wash each other so that verse uh, verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own body. One of the purposes of marriage is to wash and cleanse each other. Now, if you have some kind of sexy idea about that, you're totally missing it, okay? Washing, cleansing, all right, totally different, okay? And this, this is what it means. Have you ever hopped in the shower uh, with some scrapes and cuts on your body? Have you ever done that? Fall down, right, skin your knee, running, biking, whatever, uh, so crossfitters, you tear your hands, right? Doing a, a bajillion pull-ups. And you, the first thing, like, you, I almost, I, I do. I, I, I'm like thinking, oh man, I really want to take a shower because it feels good. But oh, I don't want to take a shower because it stings like the devil, right? You got to scrape, you got to cut, and it burns, it hurts. It do, doesn't it? It hurts, doesn't it? It stings, um, 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says that when Jesus comes back, one of the things he does is he's going to bring to light the things that are hidden in darkness and he's going to expose the things that's in our heart. He's going to expose. You don't know your heart. I know you think you do. No, if you knew my heart, you know. No, no, no. You don't know your heart. Jesus said your heart is desperately wicked and self-centered. That's the truth about our heart. And one of the things Jesus will do when he comes back in the new creation, he's going to expose to us our heart. He's going to show us just how wicked our heart really was, but he still loved us and he still forgave us in spite of it. Marriage does the same thing. Marriage exposes. It's like getting in that hot shower and the sting exposes all your bruises and all your hurts and all your cuts. Marriage stings. Marriage is difficult sometimes, but it, it, it washes us, but it stings at the same time, exposing some of the stuff that's going on in her heart. Keller uh, uses this great il- illustration. Um, there's a bridge, right? And, and everybody drives across this bridge every single day. But a guy gets underneath that bridge and he starts seeing these hairline cracks. Okay, every single year they spend like half the year, you know, working on 74. Okay, it's always a great time to be in the Quad Cities, right? One time, this is not my best moment. Uh, I was an absolute moron, but one time I was training for a, a half marathon and I thought it'd be wise to run from my apartment in East Moline to my parents' house in Davenport. 
And being a genius of about 21 years old, I said, oh, there's a lane shut down on 74. I'll just take 74. So I ran from East Moline to my parents' house in Davenport across 74 Bridge. Shining moment, shining moment, right? And one of the things I did, when they're working on this bridge, they find these hairline fractures, these hairline cracks, and then they, they cut them out and they replace them and, and remove them, all right? And I remember jumping over huge gaps in the bridge, looking straight down at the Mississippi, all right? Now, this is why. To, to me, running across, these cracks looked huge. These cracks, you know, and, and, and even if you're looking at a bridge, these hairline crack, cracks, they're, they're a big deal, but not right now. Right now, we can cut it open, we can fix it, we can mend it. But in the future, if, you get, if you're going to drive a, 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 a bunch of Mack trucks or semi-trucks over this bridge, those hairline cracks, those hairline fractures are going to open up and that bridge can cave out. That bridge can completely cave in. If those hairline cracks don't get addressed, the weight of life, the weight of travel across there will crush it. So with marriage, your faults, your, your idolatry, your issues, they seem like hairline fractures, hairline cracks. And marriage is the Mack truck that comes over that and exposes those things. And it exposes them to heal them, to bring the sanctification of the Spirit, to bring the work of God to bear, to push you towards new creation, to make you more like the image of the glory in the face of Jesus Christ, that we're being made into that image of Christ. That's what marriage does. It exposes the cracks. It exposes the issues in your life so that the Spirit of God can bring you to a maturity in Jesus Christ. See, your parents, they tried to tell you about your defects. Your parents tried to point out the hairline cracks. They tried to. Your friends, they point out some of your issues. Okay? They're trying to warn you about these issues. But there's no covenant in those relationships. So when they tell you those things, you psst, uh-uh, I ain't trying to hear that. I'm out of here. Right? That's usually what really gets the kids out of the house. Right? It's not that they're just ready. They're just tired of hearing mom talk about their issues and talk about, see their hairline cracks and point them out. So they're just bolting. Right? That's why in friendship, when your friends start pointing out just, you're just judgmental. You don't know me. You don't know my heart. And we just shut them off. We just get cold to them. Well, guess what? In marriage, there's meant to be a covenant. And you can't run. You're glued to that person that's got their finger in that hairline crack. What about this? What about this? What about this? Marriage forces you, listen to this, marriage forces you to confront yourself. You got to take a look at yourself. Why are you so self-centered? Why does everything have to come back to you? Why does your comfort rule the house? You walk in and mom's got to put a beer in your hand and the kid's got to pop your feet up and kids don't bother dad, he's watching TV. He's had a hard day at work. That's sin. Can you not relax? No, that's not what I'm saying. You come in from a hard day's work. She's had a hard day at home. She's had a hard day at work as well. The kids need your affection. The kids need your love. The kids need your time. Lay down your life, husband. 
Marriage forces you to confront yourself. You've got to take a look at yourself. And this, when this penny drops, I think it could change your marriage. You're not fighting with your spouse. You're fighting with yourself. You're fighting with your self-centeredness. You're just like that three-year-old that says, I want it and I want it now. Except it's more complex. It's a pedicure. <laughs> it's a new car. It's more time alone. It's a hunting trip with the boys. It's going back to school. It's always something. And, you, and we think that our situation is different. But it all comes back to, I want my way. And you exist to serve me. You exist to make me feel loved. Listen to this. This is, this is kind of our, a, a postmodern view of marriage. God says, I'm going to take two people with design deficits and put them together, and they're going to complement each other. This guy has strengths. She's got strengths. We're going to put them together, and they're going to complement each other. The postmodern idea of marriage is two vacuums coming together. Oh, my God. All I need is her, and she'll complete me, and she'll make me feel like I'm worth something. Everybody made fun of me, and I've never been successful enough in business. And finally, if I get her love, I'll feel like a man. And she's saying the same thing about him. People have always looked down on me. I've never been good enough. I've been used and abused by men. I didn't have a father that loved me. And when I get his love, I'll finally be whole. Jerry Maguire, they said it best. You'll complete me. And that's not the picture. That complete me is not the picture of a, of a man and a wife complimenting each other with design deficits. That picture is, I need to be married because I'm not okay. And that's like two vacuums getting together. And they don't complement. They just double the force of suction. And that does suck more. Okay? <laughs> They're saying, this is what they're saying. They don't know they're saying that. Because I can't find my satisfaction in Christ, I need your love. I need it. I have to have it or I'm worthless without it. I feel weak without it. I feel uh, invaluable without it. I have no meaning to my life without your love. And the Christian, the Christian, this is how the Christian can live a whole different type of marriage because he's empowered by the Spirit of God that points up to Jesus Christ. And it says, he loved me perfectly. I'm completed in him. I'm accepted in him. I'm fit in him. I'm whole in him. My joy, my love, my peace is found in him so I can lay down my life from the other person. And I don't need from them. I don't need it. In marriage, we're being confronted with our own self-centeredness. <clears throat> This is why it takes a covenant marriage to make it work. It takes a covenant. You can't run from it. Marriage is standing before the state, the government, God, the church, your friends, and your families, and it's making a lifelong commitment to be loving, to be cherishing, to be tender, to be tough, to be faithful till death do you part. It's a covenant that says when you're old and gray and overweight and you can't serve me in any way, I'll be there. If you're, if you're in a wheelchair, I'll be there. If I don't feel like it, I'll be there. See how this is totally different from our society's 
idea and concept of marriage? Eh, maybe. If I feel like it, you, you know I'll be there. Nothing, other, you know, nothing else pops up, you got me. Are you ready to make that commitment? If you are, you're ready to get married. If you're not, you're not. doesn't say, I promise, every time you walk in the room, my heart will beat. I promise every time I see you, oh, butterflies, right? Every t- I promise rainbows will light the path as you walk to me every time. It doesn't promise googly-eyed foolishness that, we, that sometimes accompanies that beginning stages of, of falling or feeling in love. Marriage doesn't promise that. Marriage promises I'll be loving, I'll be tender, I'll be faithful, even when I don't feel like it. When my coworker at work looks a little better because she hasn't had three kids yet, I promise I'll be faithful to you no matter what she does. No matter how she looks at me, no matter how she makes me feel. No matter how much money that boss has, I'll be faithful to you. There is no covenant in the backseat of a car. There is no covenant in cohabitation. I want you to see that any other definition of love than what we're showing you today from Scripture is self-centered. It's based on feelings, on a contract at best, but that is not how Christ loves us. This is the mystery, that our love for our spouse reflects Christ's love for us. That he went, when he went into, went into the garden the night he was going to be executed, Jesus Christ was not overwhelmed with just how beautiful and sexy we were. Over, he were his bride. He was not overwhelmed at our worthfulness. Oh, I just can't wait to get these people. They're so brilliant. They're finally going to make me feel good. Jesus Christ was in the garden and he was sweating drops of blood. Has your marriage got there yet? Because it's coming if it hasn't. Okay. They're sweating. Drop, he, Jesus is sweating drops of blood. He's sweating drops of blood. Why? Because the covenant faithfulness of God was in front of him. He said, I made a covenant with my father that I would obey him in all things. And he's asked of me my very life to lay it down for an unfaithful bride. I'm laying my life down for people that will turn their back on me, that will spit on me, that will crucify me, that will worship other gods before me. And I'm going to lay my life down for them, not because they're beautiful and there's something to be cherished, but because God is so good and my covenant is with Him. When He didn't feel like it, He acted loving. When he didn't feel like it, he pushed through even to the point of dying death, dying our death on the cross. He was committed to the Father's will. He was committed to our redemption. That's the mystery of marriage. It's how we live with one eye on the cross at all times. That we're motivated by what Christ has done in us. We're so overwhelmed. We're so in awe of that. We lay our life down for our spouse. Make a commitment to be there in the future.
loving. This is why we, we live life together. One of the reasons we live life together in missional communities. Because when I don't feel like it, I can have my brother Alex look at me and say, I don't care how you feel. You be loving. 1 Corinthians 16. Be strong. Act like a man. Walk in love. We live life together because we need it. And you know what? My wife needs to be able to call Bridget or Alex and say, he is acting a fool right now. Somebody needs to call him. And they live life with me in such a way that they can call me out on my self-centeredness. They can call me out on the idols of my heart that I want to worship control. And I want to worship being productive. And I want to, I want to ever, I want to just forget about my wife sometimes and I just want to accomplish and accomplish and accomplish because the idol of success drives me more than the idol or than, than, the, than the true God of the universe that says lay your life down for your wife. This is completely countercultural. As we come to the table this morning, I want us to to remember that. I want us to think about that. I want us to repent. Many of us, probably before you come to the table this morning, you might need to take a moment. You might need to go to the foyer. You might need to go to the sides. And you might need to look your spouse in the eye and repent. Listen, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if the gospel has changed your heart, there's only two things for you to do the rest of your life. Martin Luther said, all of life is that of repentance. Repentance and faith is all that's left for you. Repent, believe the gospel. You might need to look in the, in the eyes of your spouse this morning and repent over your self-centeredness. Repent over not laying your life down for them. Repent before you come to the table. This table is for baptized believers only. Um, we have wine and grape juice. We have regular bread and gluten-free. So if you um, either don't uh, t- taste alcohol um, or you, you're gluten intolerant, we have that for you. Just ask for it. It's in either hand. Um, that this right here represents the mar- part of it, the marriage supper of the Lamb in the new creation. It will be presented as the bride of Christ. God's throwing a party, and we get to come, and we get to remember that Christ was broken for us. He gave his life for an unfaithful bride. He stayed committed He stays committed. He's in covenant with us, an unfaithful church. Why do we do public repentance every week? Because we're unfaithful every day. We turn to other gods to satisfy us and not to the ultimate God. And this table reminds us we're covenant with God and we're in covenant with his church, our family. I'm going to pray. Father, I thank you for the work of your spirit. I thank you that you are here, present, that you're pointing people to Jesus Christ, that you are applying the work of redemption, that Jesus Christ saved people on the cross, and you are applying that work of redemption right now. I thank you for the salvations that have happened throughout this week, this week, in homes, and it's just glorious news that the mission of God is moving forward. And I pray right now that you would bring, and you would bring faith to people, that you would give them eyes to see, that you would bring the dead to life, the spiritually bankrupt, that you would make them rich in Christ. And Father, those of us who have believed and put our faith in you, and we struggle to believe that on a daily basis, I pray that this body and bread would communicate grace to us, that it would encourage us, that it would strengthen us, that it would nourish our weak faith. Father, help us in our unbelief. Help us to believe. 
And Father, remind us how your blood washes us clean of sin. We stand before you not because we've earned the right, not because we've got it together, not because we finally stopped being self-centered. We stand before you and you have a smile on your face because Christ lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. He died our substitutionary death and he gives us his right standing before you. So we stand now washed by the blood of God. We stand before you cleansed. We stand before you holy in the righteousness of Christ. We thank you for your body that was broken and your blood that was shed for us. In Jesus' name, amen.